Standing in honor of God's Word, this morning we're going to look once again at Matthew 6, and this morning we'll look at verses 7 through 15. Matthew 6, 7 through 15. Continuing on to talk about the Lord's prayer. And this morning we'll focus on the fifth petition, forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, all of it. Our Lord said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You will continue to teach us about the Lord's Prayer and guide us in our prayer life so that we can grow in prayer. And this morning as we contemplate forgiveness, we ask that You will teach us if anything is central to the Christian life, it is that of being forgiven and forgiving others. So help us to see the great forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ so that we can extend that forgiveness to others. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe seated? It's a well-known axiom that adversity will either make you better or bitter. And it's interesting if you think about it that two people can go through similar circumstances and one can come through it better and another person bitter. Uh, Two ladies can go through similar circumstances and later in life one can be loving and gentle and just as sweet as pie. And another woman who has gone through almost exactly the same circumstances come through and she is cantankerous and sour as can be. What's the difference? Why is one better while the other is bitter? A key difference, perhaps the key difference in many situations, is the capacity to forgive. In 1 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. So a loving person is a person who has been able to do away with that record of wrongs. Here's the picture I have in my mind's eye. Every single one of us in this room basically walks through life with a piece of paper in one hand and a pen in the other hand. And what happens when you and I are wronged or slighted or scorned? You know what happens. We take that pen... Yeah, make sure it's ready. And we write it down 
Okay, Joe Blow on such and such a date, such and such a time, said this, insulted me, and, and we write that baby down, don't we? We make sure we have a record of it. And then a couple hours later, somebody else wrongs us, and once again, we take out our trusty pen and we write it down, and so-and-so at this time wronged, and he wronged me in such and such a way, right? Now, of course, we don't do that literally, but we do that in our minds, don't we? And perhaps we don't write it on a sheet of paper. Perhaps we etch that thing into granite. And it's not going anywhere. But if we're going to be loving people, we need to get rid of that. Um, if, if you want to be a, a bitter, unloving person, here's, here's what you do. It's, it's real easy. Every single day when you wake up in the morning, just, just take out that ledger of all those wrongs and just go through each one of them one by one by one. And I guarantee you, you will become a sour, bitter, angry person. But if you don't want to be a sour, bitter, angry person, if you want to be a loving person, if you want to be a gentle person, if you want to be better, then forgive those who have wronged you. The story is told of a lady who was maliciously slandered by a good friend of hers. And it really hurt her deeply, but she forgave her friend. A couple of years later, a mutual friend reminded this woman of how she had been mocked by her good friend, how she had been scorned. And the woman responded by saying, you're right, but I remember distinctly forgetting that. That's pretty good. We need to remember to forgive and forget what others have done to us. As we continue to look at the different petitions in the Lord's Prayer, let's remember that Jesus is giving us a pattern to follow. And this is to be the pattern of our prayer life because this is to be the pattern of our Christian life. In this prayer, Jesus is showing us what our greatest concerns are. And we've seen that our greatest concerns are for God's name to be exalted, for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done for God to give us our daily bread, and as we're looking at this morning, for God to forgive us as we forgive others. Now, a couple questions before we proceed. How often should we pray the Lord's Prayer? Are there any hints that are provided for us in the Lord's Prayer as to how often we should pray the Lord's Prayer? Daily. Daily. Very good. What did we see last week? Give us this day our daily bread. So I could just ask this question. Uh, how often do you want to eat? <laughs> as often as you want to eat, you should pray the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and if you already have food, then the prayer becomes a prayer of thanksgiving. Follow-up question. Uh, how often we, should we pray for God to forgive us? And again, I want to ask if there are any hints provided for us in the Lord's Prayer. How often should we ask God to forgive us? At least daily. At least daily. And there is a hint provided for us, and this is what the ESV has, and I hope your translation has it. Some don't, but this is very literal. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. The next word is, And... Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we'll look at next week. Very important connection here. So Jesus says that we are to ask for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And then right after we ask for daily and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this close connection between asking for daily bread and forgiveness teaches us at least two things. Number one, A.W. Pink says, we are taught that without pardon, all the good things of this life will benefit us nothing. The Puritan Matthew Henry stated it even stronger. He said, our daily bread only fattens us as lambs for the slaughter if our sins be not pardoned. Which is a great reminder that we need God to provide us with our daily needs, but we also need forgiveness at the same time because all these great gifts and benefits of God will not aid us at all if God doesn't forgive us for our sins. Another thing that we're taught by this close connection, we're taught that as often as we eat, we should seek forgiveness and to forgive others. And we need to see that these go together. Asking God for forgiveness and forgiving others at the same time. And I hope you notice that right after we were given the Lord's Prayer, Jesus wanted to comment on one of the petitions, and it was this one. And He made the implication very clear. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, Some commentators have referred to this as the terrifying petition. And it really is a terrifying petition. Because here's the truth. None of us forgives those who have wronged us like God forgives us. I appreciate the honesty of R.C. Sproul who said, if this is to be taken absolutely, if this is to be taken literally, then I'm undone. Because I don't, I never have, and I never will completely forgive others like God has forgiven me. Nevertheless, Jesus is very clear. We have to forgive others. And if we don't forgive others, God is not going to forgive us. So the question is, how can we become a forgiven people so that we can also be a forgiving people? people. And I want you to know that I'm under no illusions this morning that this is an easy thing to do. This is not an easy thing to do. Uh, Some of us in this room have been violated in horrendous ways. Some of us don't even want to share how we've been violated because it's so terrible. Some of us have been offended in great ways. Um, This is not an easy thing to do. Um, Those in previous generations had family members who were part of the Holocaust. Um, This is a wicked world. This is a cruel world. And it is not an easy thing. It's not a flippant thing to just say, well, just forgive and forget and, and let it go. That is not always easy to do. But again, if we don't forgive, God won't forgive us. So this this is a serious thing. So how can we be a forgiven and forgiving people? I want us to consider three points and they build on each other. First of all, 
You need to realize the seriousness of your sin. The seriousness of your sin. We'll start there. And then number two, relish God's grace and your forgiveness. And then that should lead to number three, respond by extending forgiveness to others. And again, these points build on one another. Let's start with number one. Realize the seriousness of your sin. We could have many points here, but I want to highlight just four. Number one, as we've already seen in the Lord's Prayer, it's one of the six petitions. So just consider that for a moment. Jesus is telling us, this is what you need to pray about. In other words, these things are really important. Jesus isn't giving us trivial things to pray about. He's saying, oh, what should you pray about? Uh, let's pray that the bears have a really good season. When Jesus says, this is what you should pray about, isn't it clearly implied because this is really important. Jesus doesn't want us wasting our time in prayer praying about foolish things like the bears. He wants us to pray for significant things. So that alone says this is really important because Jesus says pray that you would be forgiven as you forgive others. And then also we see that's important. Again, we've already commented on this. But this is so important. We need to pray this every day. And not only do we need to ask for forgiveness every day, but every day we need to ask for forgiveness as we forgive others, which also tells us every single day we need to make sure we're not harboring bitterness. And if we are harboring bitterness, we need to ask for forgiveness with that. And we need to ask with help for that. So we need to ask for help with our sin every single day. Third point, sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Uh, unbelievers are separated from God because of their sin, so they have no relationship. Believers who give in to sin are separated from God. It's not that they're not children any longer, but but fellowship is disrupted. Like we said during the time of confession, if a friend sins against you, that's going to affect the relationship. And that's what can happen with God when we sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities. And again, Isaiah the prophet, he's talking to the people of God. He's talking to God's people. He's saying, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So sin has disrupted the relationship so that God doesn't hear. And I can tell you this, if there's sin in your life that you're not forsaking, that you're not dealing with, it's affecting your prayer life. Your prayer life is suffering because of it. God is not listening to you like He should. And you know that He's not listening to you like He should. So we need to confess our sins. And then a fourth point that shows the seriousness of sin. No work can atone for sin. What could you possibly offer God to compensate for your sin? Which again, shows how serious it is. What could you possibly give God to say, oh, I've sinned against you. What, 
What could you offer God that would make up for the sin that you've committed? That question is considered in Micah. It's one of those minor prophets that's tucked away back in the Old Testament. It's one of those books that you try to find. It takes forever. So don't worry about it. I'll just read it for you. <laughs> so you don't have to embarrass yourself looking, looking for it. But this is what Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? And then he goes on to ask these questions. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? See what he's saying? I've sinned against God. Maybe if I bring thousands of rams, then, then God will be, be pleased with me and accept me. Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Ten thousands of rivers of oil. Maybe if I just bring all this oil, then maybe that will make up for my sin. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's, that's what the pagans around Israel did. They offered their children to false gods. And the prophet is saying, if, if I offered my firstborn son, would that make up for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See what the prophet is saying? He, he's just trying to imagine what could I possibly bring God to make up for my sin? And he's just being extravagant and thinking what he could bring and he realized nothing. And then the next verse is kind of interesting. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Now, something really interesting about this verse here. Um, a while ago, I was speaking with a Jehovah's Witness and I was saying, what does God require of you? And they, they quoted this verse. And I, I've heard it quoted more than one. They, they like this verse for whatever reason. And here's what's fascinating. The woman who quoted this verse was quoting it to say, well, this is what God requires of me and this is what I'm doing. And she said, and, and I hope that I've done enough. And I pointed out, I made it real clear. I said, you're in trouble. <laughs> you hope that you've done enough? Let me tell you, you haven't done enough. Here's the fascinating thing about her quoting this verse to me. She was quoting this verse as a verse about justification. How she, she can be accepted before God. Well, if I do what He's calling me to do, in other words, if I do justice, if I love mercy, if I walk humbly with my God, He'll be accepted. But this isn't a verse about justification. This is a verse about condemnation. There's the sad irony. She's got it exactly wrong. Because in the context, you saw what came before it. In the context, the prophet is saying, what can I bring for my sin? This is what God requires. And if you keep reading, God says, and you haven't done any of it. You haven't done what I've required of you. You're in trouble. Yeah, this is what God requires of us. And none of us have done this perfectly, which is why we're in trouble. And then you get to the end. In the last few verses, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnants of His inheritance. 
He does not retain His anger forever. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You're amazed that God would forgive you when you realize there's nothing that I can do. My only hope of forgiveness is the sure mercy, grace, and love of God. That's my only hope because there's absolutely nothing that I can bring to atone for my sin. Which brings us to our second point. Relish the grace of God in your forgiveness. Ephesians 2.8.9 For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone should boast. It's grace. It's just God saying, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to forgive you. It's not a result of works, making it very clear. You're not forgiven because of anything that you have done. And as John Stott used to say, the only thing that we've contributed to our salvation is the sin from which we needed to be forgiven. Psalm 51 is fascinating. Psalm 51 is a, is a psalm of David. And he wrote it after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And then he tried to cover it up by having uh, her husband, Uriah the Hittite, assassinated. And under the Old Covenant, uh, you know what you could offer for adultery and murder? Nothing. There was nothing that you could bring to God to make up for that sin. Those sins were punishable by death. And David was guilty of that. So what can he do? There's not an offering he can bring. What can he do? There's only one thing that he can do. Literally, throw himself on the mercy of the judge. And that's what we see in this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Notice what he's appealing to. God's mercy. That's it. His only hope. Lord, be merciful. And because of your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He knows that his only hope is that God will be merciful because there's nothing he can do. There's nothing he can offer God. And he did find God to be merciful. Now, it's interesting, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus says that we're to say, uh, forgive us our debts. So, we, we all have debts. A little later, he talks about transgressions. Um, in Luke 11, it's forgive us our sin. In order to help us understand how sinful we are, we have these different words. So, we have Sin, which is literally missing the mark. God tells us to do something. We don't do it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't glorify God in all that we do. We have trespasses. God says, don't go there. And we go there anyway. So we trespass against God. And then we have debts. Of course, we usually think of financial debts, right? Many of us say, I have debts. Yeah. <laughs> I have too many debts right now. Uh, this is talking about a moral debt. 
debt. And our moral debt um, is pretty high. To help us understand how high, Jesus gives a parable, Matthew 18. Turn there if you like. Matthew 18. And appropriately enough, the context is about forgiving. Peter says, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? In, in verse 21 of chapter 18. And he says, as many as seven. Of course, Peter thinks he's being very magnanimous here. Common teaching of the day was you can forgive up to three times. After that, no more forgiveness. That's enough. Three strikes, you're out, they had in ancient Israel. Peter says, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to double it and add one. Jesus is going to be so impressed with me. <laughs> up to 70 times, Lord? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you 70 times, but 70 times 7. 490 times. No, that's just a figure of speech. And of course, to help Peter understand how forgiving we're to be, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, we need to pause right there for a moment. In order to figure this out, I had to get out my calculator. This is what the footnote in my Bible says. A talent was a monetary unit worth 20 years' wages of a laborer. Okay, so let's just say an average laborer today, uh, just $50,000 a year. Make, just to give it rough, rough amount. So $50,000 a year times 20 years equals million dollars. Okay? Million dollars times times ten thousand, and it didn't fit in my calculator because I ran out of zeros. But it was ten billion. Okay, today's currency, ten billion dollar debt, which really makes you to want, how could a laborer <laughs> could have received a loan so that he would be in debt ten billion dollars? What's Jesus doing here? with these inflated, out-of-control numbers. What's he, what's he doing? What's, what's the point? He, he's showing that there's no possible way you're paying this back. That, that's the point of these outrageous numbers here in the parable. Ten billion dollars. There's, there's no way you're paying that back. Okay, There's no way any of us in that room could pay that back in ten lifetimes. There's no way we could get that kind of money. So he's just showing your debt is so great. There is no hope except for what? The mercy of the judge. And since he could not pay, Jesus continues on. His master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Paying for patience. Just give me a little more time and I'll pay it back. Never going to pay it back. He needs more than patience. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just had pity. Just had compassion. And just with a wave of the hand, the master wiped out the debt. Ten 
billion dollars. You know what the next verse should, should read? And after the release of the debt, they had to pick him up off the floor <laughs> because he was stunned. But that's not what it says. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I don't know, this might be somewhere around a few hundred dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He says the same thing, just be patient. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Ten billion dollars, few hundred dollars, throws him in prison. rest of the story. The other servants hear about this. They go back. They tell the master, you're not going to believe what that scoundrel did. You forgave him everything and this is what he went out and did. The master is not happy at all. Verse 32, he's summoned by the master and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Literally, this should read, and again, I have it in my footnote, he delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all his debt. So he's going to be tormented until he can pay back the $10 billion debt. When is he going to pay back the $10 billion debt as he's sitting in prison? Never! This is a picture of hell. This is a picture of hell. His debt, he deserved torment, but he was forgiven. But because he wasn't forgiven, he was now tormented. And then Jesus says, the punchline, 35, So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Jesus makes it very clear. You've been forgiven this much and you can't forgive this. So again, Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother, neither will you be forgiven. Our, our debt is absolutely huge, which helps us to understand what happens to Christ when He died on the cross. And this is what we read in Colossians 2. 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God took our debt, took it to the cross, nailed it to the cross, when Jesus was crucified so that we could be forgiven. That's the forgiveness that is ours. We could also say the seriousness of sin is that it deserves eternal punishment. It deserves hell. Tim Keller has an interesting answer when, he, uh, when people ask him, um, what do you say to people who say, I don't believe and a God who would send people to hell. He says, then you don't understand the love of God. To appreciate the love of God, you have to understand that God is holy. God is just. Therefore, God has to punish sin. And because sin is so severe, it deserves a punishment. 
and hell. But because of God's love, He sends Christ to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. But to understand the love of God, you have to understand the doctrine of hell. They go together. So he talks about a pendulum. So the pendulum swings way over here with a holy God and a just God who sends sinners to hell. And when you understand that, you tremble. But then when you understand what God has done because of His love for us in Jesus Christ, the pendulum swings way back over here. And then when we understand that we are forgiven, then we truly understand how much God loves us. He says, he one time asked the woman who didn't believe in hell, he said, well, what does it cost your God to forgive you? And she said, well, it doesn't cost Him anything. And he said, right. You don't have a holy God. You don't have a just God. He said, but also, you don't have a God who really loves you and would pay the price for your sin. So you don't have a holy God and you don't have a loving God. You just have this blah, generic God who you can't get excited about one way or the other. Your God isn't much of a God at all. He really can't do anything. Why would you even believe in such a God? But my God is so great, He delivers from hell because of His great love. So He's holy and He's loving at the same time. So it really is important to put those two together. And when we understand and relish the grace that we have, that will naturally lead to the third point, which is responding by extending forgiveness to others. And it should really just be natural. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not saying that we earn forgiveness. You can misunderstand it. This is not saying if you forgive others, then because of that forgiveness, you've earned forgiveness for yourself. That's not the point at all. The point is, if we have been forgiven, then we will naturally forgive others and we show that we are forgiven by forgiving others. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, it means that the proof that you and I are forgiven is that we forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive somebody else, we are making a mistake. We have never been forgiven. The man who knows he has been forgiven only in and through the shed blood of Christ is the man who must forgive others. He cannot help himself. And I think that's so important. He cannot help himself. When you realize, I've been forgiven this much, and by comparison, this person has sinned against me this much, you can't help but forgive because of how much you've been forgiven. And if you don't forgive... Again, that just shows that you haven't been forgiven. In the 18th century, uh, John Wesley was having a difficult time with General Oglethorpe. He was the proud founder of the uh, colonial Georgia. On one occasion, uh, General Oglethorpe said, I never forgive. John Wesley responded, Then I hope, sir, you never sin. Because Wesley understood the implication of the Lord's Prayer. If you never forgive, you will never be forgiven. And the Greek meaning of forgiveness is really fascinating. It comes from the word that means to let go. Forgiveness 
is a release. It's a letting go of the debt. It's a letting go of the wrong. It's a letting go of the bitterness. It's a letting go of the anger that you otherwise might harbor in your own soul. So forgiveness is not only important for others. Again, forgiveness is important for our own psychological well-being. Moving ahead a couple centuries to the 20th century uh, during the Second World War and shortly thereafter, Richard Wormbrand. Some of you might be familiar with him. He wrote a um, well-known book called Tortured for Christ. He's the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. Um, If I remember the story correct, he was in prison for some 14 years um, because uh, Romania was under under communism. Um, on one occasion, he was in a, a prison cell that was reserved for those who were dying. And he says that there was a, a cot on his left and a cot on his right. And in the cots on his right was a pastor who had been beaten so badly that he was about to die. And in the cot on his left uh, was a communist guard the very one who had beaten the pastor who was in the cot on his right, um, but he had been betrayed and he was tortured by his comrades. And now these two men were in the same cell with Richard Wormbrand right in the middle of these two men. And he says, One night the communist awakened in the middle of a nightmare and cried out, Please, pastor, say a prayer for me. I have committed such crimes. I cannot die. The pastor feebly got up, stumbled past Wormbrand's cot, and sat on the bedside of his enemy. As he watched, Wormbrand saw the pastor, caressed the hair of the man who had tortured him, and speak these amazing words. I have forgiven you with all my heart, and I love you. If I, who am only a sinner, can love and forgive you, more so can Jesus, who is the Son of God and who is love incarnate, return to Him. He longs for you much more than you long for Him. He wishes to forgive you much more than you wish to be forgiven. Just repent. Wormbrand goes on to say, there in the prison cell, the communist began to confess all his murders and tortures. When he had finished, the two men prayed together, embraced, and then returned to their beds where each died that very night. Forgiveness is powerful. And when you understand what Christ has done for you, you can, by the grace of God, extend it even to your enemies. And isn't this what Christianity is all about? And think of what a, what a testimony that is to those who are watching. You know, we recall when Jesus was on the cross, what did He pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And similarly, when Stephen was being stoned in the book of Acts, He said, Lord, forgive them. And Saul was listening to that. And he was later converted. And he never forgot that. He mentioned it later that he was there giving approval to Stephen's 
Estonia. And I think he was absolutely blown away when Stephen was praying out loud for God to forgive them. So this is important for our own well-being and the Christian testimony. What a terrible testimony. Think about it. If we talk about how great is the forgiveness of God if we're a bitter, angry, unforgiving people. What does that communicate about the Gospel? Our lives can be a contradiction of the Gospel. Our lives need to be forgiving so that people see this is real and it really is available and it really does transform lives. It's been said that there are actually five Gospels. The Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to John. And the Gospel according to you. And many people will not read the first four Gospels. So it's crucial that we see what sinners we are, that we really do relish the forgiveness that is ours, and then respond by extending that forgiveness to others for our own well-being as well as for manifesting the Gospel in our very lives so that people can see God really does forgive. I don't have to be a bitter person. And by the grace of God, we can live such lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we prepare to come before the Lord's table and how good it is to be reminded every week that we are sinners. But Jesus died for us, paying for our debt so that we could be forgiven. And Father, this morning we see that that needs to extend a little further to us forgiving others. Father, I thank You that every week we can end the service by looking to the cross and feasting on the bread and the wine. Father, thank You for the tremendous forgiveness that is ours in Christ. I want to pray that we only grow as Christians in our appreciation for all that's been done for us. And I pray that our lives will be transformed by the cross. We think that our Christian life began with forgiveness, but we're reminded this morning, yes, it begins with forgiveness, but it continues on with forgiveness as well as forgiving others. So, Father, help us to act in accord with the truth of the Gospel we've received. In Jesus' name, Amen.